Hey everyone, Simba Kader here, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with Harry Glasser. Harry is the co-founder and CEO of Modelblade, the easiest way for data scientists to deploy ML models. He was previously the co-founder and CEO of Periscope Data, which was acquired by SciSense in 2019. He started his career A-B testing the search results page at Google, and in his spare time, he still can read a little bit of code to Modelblade, much to the frustration of his co-founder. Harry, great to have you on today. Oh, thank you, Simba. It's great to be here. So we talked a bit about how your journey, I guess, lastly, you were working more on the BI side. Now you're obviously working more on the ML side and deployment, MLOps side. I want to go back to the BI days. I think there's this question I've had that I don't think is a new question and I don't think is a resolved question, funny enough, which is the marketization of data. Like kind of part of the pitch of BI was, hey, anyone can go and build their own dashboards and reports. You could argue there's a strong counter movement to that of, hey, we have a ton of broken reports and people using data that's incorrect because data is tough. What's the perfect world look like? What's the state? Like, how should, if I, you know, manage a large team, like, how do I think about that? that cost? I think one of the first things to understand about this is that this is not a new question or a new problem. BI as a category has existed in some form since the 60s. I mean, in some forms, since like the East India Trading Company and handwritten reports, and you can go look at those ledgers and they're doing business intelligence. They're calculating their cost of customer acquisition. But on computers since at least the 60s, and it really got going in the 80s with Cognos and then MicroStrategy. And in those days, there were data analysts who worked directly on Cognos and on their Vertica you know, warehouse and then delivered those reports to sales managers. And then sales managers would try to do the reports themselves and get it wrong or something. And you know, that tension existed through Tableau and then, you know, fast forward to sort of what we call now the modern data stack, which, you know, typically includes a BI product like Looker or if I'm flattering myself, Periscope Data, which was my company or Mode or any of those companies. And I think, you know, to answer your question directly, the ideal space is just provide a or the ideal outcome is provide a suite of capabilities, Right provide a drag and drop, you know, measures and dimensions kind of interface, Tableau style, for people who are comfortable working with a data model that you defined and understand how to make measures and dimensions and facts and how to get their own report. And they'll be happy and they'll be able to do that and then provide a data mart and a SQL editor on top of it for people who want to work with only correct data but know their SQL and can understand whether the join they're writing might or might not be valid. And then provide something under the hood for the people who want to go under the hood and let people grow and let people learn. But understand that self-service for a sales manager is going to look like, let me change the dimension or the filter on this report that you made for me. It makes sense. Like the way you throw, uh, put it, I mean, this is kind of the pattern, I think, that a lot of companies have tried to emulate. The amount of companies that maybe have been successful in emulating it is another question. And it feels like it should be easy. Like you said, like, this is like data is something we've been doing well forever, but you know, there's many like generations of companies that have like gone public that have come and gone trying to make data easier. And we're still, I mean, God, bless, <laughs> God bless BI as a category, right? It has since, since those days of Cognos and MicroStrategy, every generation, there's a new couple winners and a new way to do it. And a new, you know, one thing I will say about MicroStrategy is like, nobody was opening it up and writing SQL. The idea that you could write SQL live to get reports was only possible with the advent of cloud data warehouses like Redshift and Snowflake. Before that, it was impossible. So that's great. And it gave, it gave rise to a new generation of winners. Just like before that, the rise of the internet gave rise to a new generation of winners like Tableau, where you could have a client server model for the first time. So all good stuff. But yeah, I mean, this idea that 
your sales manager should be able to write their own SQL report. Or on the flip side, this idea that, no, the data analyst is the only one who will access data, and the way you get data should be to ask data analysts. That's not realistic at like Ford Motor Company, right? The size of the data team at Ford Motor Company or Pizza Hut is just not equal to the task of writing individual reports for everybody who wants reports. And so, yeah, you're going to have to live in a world where you build some you know, data marts and some business intelligence and some drag and drop for those companies. And then on the flip side of that, if you're a really hyper modern company, if you're open AI, where you think probably the capability of the average employee to write SQL is high, then yeah, you want a different kind of tool chain and you'll be able to do different kinds of data-driven decision-making. In, in software, I know you were at Google, I was at Google for a little bit. I feel like we kind of knew how to do software pretty well. Yeah, sure. In data, I actually have a hard time even thinking of like a gold standard company, especially for ML. When I think of MLOps, it's hard to even think of like, oh, we all should be like this company. Or with DevOps, I feel like there were much more clear examples. Like, hey, like in a perfect world, if we could all do something that kind of looked like Google, we would all be amazing at this. Why is it so different from your perspective? Why is DevOps and MLOps so different? It's just newer. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. If you joined Sun Microsystems when they were a hot company, you know, when they were in the Facebook campus before Facebook was there, DevOps was FTP your build to the build server. Netscape famously, when they launched, this was not that long ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when Netscape launched, they were uploading the latest binary to the FTP server and then people were downloading it. That was DevOps. It works on my machine was literally a phrase that you would use. Seems like it's good. I don't know. I'll upload a readme.txt with what I did in case it doesn't work for you. So, you know. And then you had client server models and then you had source control, you know, merged with your uh, build process to produce CICD and, and Heroku and all these things. And, and now we've got it down to, I mean, at least for this generation, a pretty good science. ML as a practice that all these companies, that's, that's not just happening in research labs, but that's happening as part of people's production environments. It's just so new that best practices are still being worked out. And you still get worked on my box. You get, well, I trained the model with Torch 1.4.1. So is it going to work with 2.0.1? No, I'm sorry. You know, install an older version of Torch or your SOL. So we're just, we're just still learning. What's the current state of like teams? Like we mentioned, I mean, we all kind of know there's this idea of data scientists. There are ML engineers, data engineers. Yeah. There are now even like product people who like live in the ML side. In the data side, they're data analysts. There's so many, uh, let's call them uh, players in the game of data. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe we can start. I'd love to kind of get your take on like, what does it, what's an average company look like from your perspective? Well, I don't know if an average, average company is doing much ML at all, but I think, or yet, right, yet. But, you know, the average company that's doing this kind of stuff, I would say, you know, you have a, a head of data, director of data, VP of data, running the data team. And that person will typically report into the back office somewhere, the CFO, the COO, something like that. And they will have three groups, the data analysts who do the BI that we were just talking about, the data engineers who get the data into you know, the source of truth, maybe a snowflake warehouse, maybe somewhere else and ensure that it's true. And then data scientists who are training and building ML models. And they report into the data org today, typically. And then you'll see an organization of ML engineers who report to the VP engineering so different org, and they are responsible for deploying the models to production. And you'll obviously see some tension, and we can talk more about this, between the ML engineers and the data scientists for the simple root cause that they're supposed to collaborate closely together, but they're in completely different orgs with different incentives and a totally different skill set. 
And that, I think, is probably your state of the art right now. So super advanced companies might layer on additional roles like a data product manager like you talked about or an ML product manager. But those four teams inside of two orgs are, are where I think we see the typical company today. If you were running a, a kind of an org like that and you had the option to change it, would you change it? Or do you think this is a, a good state to work from? I would buy an ML ops product that lets my data scientists deploy models without ML engineers, or I should say maybe more accurately, supervised by ML engineers, but without them directly in the loop of each model. I personally think Modelbit is a great choice, but, but there are others. And I would keep the ML engineers, though, to administer that and integrate it. And also, you'll have the ML engineers more tightly in the loop for your most important models. So if you, ha- if you think about yourself as, I'll take a random example, if you're Stripe, right, you have a fraud model probably multiple fraud models that are critical to the company and are built entirely custom for the company's business. And the ML engineers will be deeply involved in deploying that model and also in building that model, right? And training it. And probably it will be an ensemble of many things. But then you will have many other models supporting many other parts of the business, search rankers for your customer search bar and, you know, some back office things like customer churn predictors. And those I would get something, I would have the ML engineers buy something for the data scientists to use so that they can just rock and roll in a Jupyter notebook really fast and then deploy those models right out of the Jupyter notebook. Why do you think we, like the ML engineers, I guess, why can't the ML engineers learn data science or data scientists not learn, I guess, ML ops or ML engineering? Do you think it's kind of too hard? Do you think that in the end, like that role will combine or do you think there will always be a separation of the roles? I think it's moving a little bit fast right now for us to make confident predictions about where the roles will land. But I think most people can learn most things. I don't think there's a reason why they couldn't, but they're different jobs. Can most product managers learn to code and become software engineers? Sure. Should they all do that? I don't know. I think there's a need for product managers. So I've certainly known data scientists who get really excited about the DevOps part of it, are unsatisfied by simply handing off their models and want want to know what it is the ML engineer is doing. But I think that's not most data scientists that I know. Most of them are very into the experimental and research and math part of it, which is cool because it's such a, it's such a novel area. It's such a new area of research. It's, it's so interesting and they want to push the boundaries of that. And so it's good that they're supported by ML engineers who can handle a lot of the DevOps and software engineering side of things. Yeah, I've even seen a separation between like data scientists, ML engineer and ML ops engineer. MLOps engineer is kind of like the platform engineer, which is another term we see. And then ML engineer is more like, I can put things in production, but the data scientists are very much like, I can like, I know the state of the art of what is possible to do with the data. And I guess, where are you seeing like the most friction in this? I feel like, uh, is the friction this in between yeah. in each silo of themselves or is the friction across the teams or, or how do you view it? I think the team, the, the biggest friction I think is between the data scientist and the ML engineer. And I think it's because the data scientist wants to rock and roll and move fast. And they are not generally responsible for whether the thing holds up in production. And then the ML engineer is incentivized, you know, is incentivized to make sure the thing works well in production, doesn't crash, and is not incentivized, you know, on data science iteration speed, right? And so you just have this sort of tension where the ML engineer has a day job that they love. Maybe it's working on the core infrastructure for the company or you know, the core, the core, the most important models or something. And let me take your PyTorch thing that you made this week and put it into production on a Friday afternoon is not what they had in mind for their Friday afternoon. And then also, you know, really perniciously, let's say the data scientist makes a model that better predicts customer churn and it saves the company a bunch of money. 
and they give it to the ML engineer to deploy and the ML engineer deploys it and it saves the company so much money that the CFO is going to like give out a bonus at the end of the quarter. They're going to give the bonus to the data scientist who made the model. So there's no upside here for the ML engineer. It's all, it's all downside because if the model crashes, well, who's responsible for pre- preventing crashes? The ML engineer. And so you have that just sort of tension. And I, I think where, however you design an organization, you're going to have different people in different orgs. And you will always have tension at the boundaries of organizations. So it's not simply a matter of moving people into a different organization. Let's say you move the ML engineers under the head of data. Well, now there's tension between the ML engineers and the software engineers. Or you move the data scientists into software engineering. Well, now there's tension between them and the data engineers who are getting them their data. So you just have to pick your tension and manage to it, understand that it's going to be there, some amount of it is healthy, and actively manage it. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, when we think about the parts of the plan, like when I break down the ML lifecycle or the model lifecycle, there's kind of, let's call it four pieces in my head. One is, let's call it data. So everything from like getting the right data, cleaning it, feature engineering, the whole feature store is a whole bit. I would say there's experimentation, which is kind of like the training, hyperparameter tuning. It's kind of where MLflow lives. Deployment, which products like yours are, are, are quite that like model bit and then there's monitoring and evaluation there's also sub companies in that space obviously every company is different when you think of those four from what you're seeing like one is that split correct do you think there's a part of that split that you see as like one of the more common friction points i think that that split is correct i would probably visualize it as a cycle right and what what really characterizes ML and data science from a product point of view relative to other product disciplines is the fact that it's sort of this continuously evolving thing. You want to really reduce the iteration time on your model. You want to be retraining and redeploying as often as possible. And if you think about that from the get-go, you can really minimize the friction, which otherwise tends to occur, I think, post-deployment to your point, where, I mean, we have a lot of customers who they what what they really want to optimize for is not having to call the software engineering team again, right? The data scientist wants to deploy their model and they want to deploy it in such a way that they can redeploy their model over and over and over again to the same endpoint so that they don't have to recall the software engineers, which is a little bit crazy because you would think in a healthy culture, the soft, you know, you would want to involve the software engineers. Maybe asking for another code push is is unnecessary, but there's going to be a fundamentally new thing behind this endpoint. And you, as the ones who are responsible for the stack overall, ought to be collaborating with us on that decision. But the, the tension has gotten to a point where they just don't want to communicate post-deployment. They want to feel like, okay, I finally got my sandbox where I can put my models and I'm going to play in it as much as I can without calling the software engineering team back. So I think post-deployment is the biggest source of friction. And I think the way to mitigate it is for everybody to be bought into the notion that this isn't like feature development, uh, feature as in a, a product feature, where we build the feature, we ship it, and we're done until we decide to come back to it. This is going to be a, co- a cycle of constant evolution and iteration. And let's talk about what that means, and let's all buy into it. Yeah, I think it's what makes data pro- and ML especially unique, is that it's very iterative, and there's a lot of, uh, it's not a straight path. We're not always completely sure where we're going. Like sometimes when we're lucky, we have a sense of what requirements of end state are, but we don't even have that sometimes. Sometimes it's entirely a like, hey, this would be cool. Like, I think this is a good idea. Let's try it. And a lot of times I'm like product where I think software engineering, it's very rare. You work on a, a product feature that is 
completely experimental. Like, I don't even know if this is possible. Right. Usually it's like, yeah, we think this is possible. How can we do it? And then now it's quite common to be like, I mean, this might literally just not be possible, what we have. We might not have the right data. Yeah, right. It's very experimental. Will the thing even work? Will it successfully predict what we want it to predict? Will it change business outcomes if it does? All that's an, and all these things should be viewed as an experiment. Absolutely. And even though we mentioned cycles and iteration, when we kind of were talking earlier about hand, you know, data scientists handing things over to ML engineers, it almost feels a little more, let's call it waterfally, which is like I finish the model, I pass it. Yeah, right. I think waterfall has become sort of a dirty word even in software engineering, but if software engineering certainly looks more waterfall, even a very agile software engineering process would look very waterfall compared to a ML process. And so, yeah, this expectation that, okay, I deployed your model, now I'm done. Why are you calling me again tomorrow? That's, that's at the root of the issue. Do you think that ML engineers and data scientists should be talking, like, should the data scientists be aware and be thinking about, hey, this is what's going to take to deploy this thing? Because I've seen ML engineers, like, they're like, yeah, like, the data scientists have it working, and they're mad at me, but I can't make this, like, magical thing. I think the ML engineers not appreciating the iterative experimental nature of the thing is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the data scientists not appreciating how big of a delta there is between what they made and what's ready for production. It comes from them not being software engineers typically, right? And you're like, okay, here's my X hundred megabyte PyTorch asset. Please take it. And the software and the you know software engineer or the ML engineer is like, okay, like what Python environment was this in? What version of PyTorch? What are all these dependencies? The dependencies have dependencies that aren't well defined, and I have to go figure it out for myself. And also, we don't run Python in production. So, am I rewriting this thing, or are we? containerizing it in some way. That's not really how we deploy other things at this company. So yeah, that's all, you know, an appreciation that at the end of the day to put the model into the product, the model is going to have to meet you halfway and get to a place where it can work inside of a production infrastructure that does many other things. Going slightly different topic. I mean, obviously you're now working in MLOps, you're working in the space. You had built a successful company before. You grew to over 150 people, over a thousand customers. You sold it. What's the motivation? Why, what made you, <laughs> one, go back to being a found, kind of like uh, the, the masochism of, of, of starting a company over again? And then two, why choose this space? I think there's something addictive about starting and running your own company, especially in the, like the, the early growth phase. You know, when you get that product market fit and then you're scaffolding the whole company and then you're you know, hiring people as fast as you can and bringing on systems and bringing on new customers and you raised that Series A, and then I, I'm old enough to, you know, raising a Series A was what you did after you had a bunch of customers and product market fit. And you're, you know, you're, you're putting a board together for the first time, and all that happens really fast. And it's really, I think we all sort of end up chasing the dragon, you know? It's like we, we want to get back to that. I'm fortunate that I have a, a, a co-founder who I love, and we've worked together for a couple decades now, and we, we know each other really well. And so I think probably the biggest factor is that he was willing to go again. And so it's like, all right, yeah, let's do it. And then... You know, we, we briefly experimented with things in a lot of different spaces. I had a lot of startup ideas. Just building Periscope, we would always jot down other startup ideas. And I, we thought about them. Like, I, I, you wonder constantly, like, why does the, my finance team need to employ a small army of junior humans who reconcile spreadsheets with each other? You know, like, why? You know, there's, all, there's all these whys as, you, as you're building a company. But we did end up gravitating back to the data space because we know it very well. And we like it. There's lots of little you know, quality of life benefits in the data space. The customers tend to be really smart and positive and kind people. We just really like that. We like building technical products. We think we're good at it. And then, yeah, one of the problems we had observed was 
we saw the formation of these modern data teams, you know, Snowflake and Redshift launched. That catalyzed the formation of the data team as we now think about it. You had this head of data managing data analysts and data engineers and data scientists. And the data analysts and data engineers were sort of collaborating on this modern data stack that they would build together. We're going to get Snowflake, and then we're going to get maybe DBT, or we'll use LookML, and then we're going to get like Looker or Periscope, and then we're going to get like High Touch or Census, and, and we'll all collaborate together on the stack. And meanwhile, the data scientists are still like off in these single-player user experiences, where they're either on a Jupyter notebook or they're on a cloud notebook like Hex or DeepNote, but still by themselves. They're not part of the collaboration that the rest of the team is going through, and they're stuck. They're doing all this cool stuff, but they're stuck. So we observed that because it was sort of adjacent to what we were doing. We were mainly serving these data analysts, but we met many data scientists and we were sort of confused about why they were stuck and they were dissatisfied. And sometimes the organization was dissatisfied with them. So when we got back together, we just started calling lots of data scientists we knew and asking and interviewing. And it led us down this path where we built a prototype of Modelbit to see if they liked it. And then they really did. And they started using it. They started using it a lot. And so we were off to the races. What makes a good MLOps product? Oof, how much time do you have? <laughs> I think it's actually not so different from building any other kind of product. And what makes a great one is true empathy for the user and understanding of not just what the user needs from a nuts and bolts point of view, but where they are in their employee life cycle and how they are feeling and what, you know, what's most, what, something that's very important to the, to the model that product design is just this tension that we've talked about between data scientists and ML engineers and therefore how everybody is feeling when they're using the product. A lot of model bits, to use a concrete example, a lot of model bits settings and administration is designed with the fact in mind that the ML engineer who's setting those things up is concerned about a loss of control. They used to hand to deploy all the models and now they are no longer going to be doing that. Model bits going to be automatically doing that. And so they're worried that they no longer have control of the process. And so giving them a feeling of control, like they can micromanage every aspect of it, they can configure it, they can shape it to their particular production constraints is really important to that buy-in. And so I think, you know, you could probably tell an analogous story about every product on earth, but an, an empathy for how the user is feeling while they're using the product, I think separates good and great. Yeah, maybe I'll stop there. I think that's probably the main thing. Yeah, I, I think one thing I've, Noticed, and I think BI fits this too. I think the companies that are successful in categories like MLOps and BI are solving organizational problems. Necessarily yes, the- I think most. I think most generational companies solve organizational problems. I think Salesforce solves the problem of the VP sales needs to know what his sales reps are doing and whether they're going to make the quarter and the status of their pipeline, right? And you know, Snowflake solves an organizational problem of we failed to log and ingest our data correctly. And Snowflake's like the first company that lets you just solve the problem with money. We're just going to write a really inefficient query on a really inefficiently organized data set that's too large. And Snowflake's still going to return me a result in 30 seconds. It's just going to charge me for it. You know, whereas previous warehouses would have been like, no, you should have done this in your ETL step. That's a really funny way to put it. <laughs> it's true. And I think it's, it's been interesting to see some of the pushback towards modern data stack as of recent. Oh, yeah. Well, I think once the, you know, the market turned, it was like, wow, you know, 
remodeling all the company's historical data since the dawn of time every night, you know, is, was a zero interest rate phenomenon and should no longer be how we organize our data. Looking forward, I'd be amiss to not bring up LLMs and, and, and kind of the new, let's call it paradigm machine learning. I guess first question, we've spent a lot of this time talking first about like data analysts. We've then talked about data scientists and ML. So we've kind of talked about both, let's call it metrics and machine learning. And now there's this yeah. new thing, which I guess we're calling AI as of now. Sure. Is the rest, like, where does it fit in? Like, is this a new paradigm? Is this replacing old things? Is this augmenting ML and, and analysts? Is it all of it? I think, I, th- I, think, I think it's just net new. To use a toy example, an LLM is not a classifier. It will not classify, right? It'll make shit up about classification if you want, because it's basically a text generator. But it's an augmentation. I mean, we see companies where, you know, let's, let's take an example. They were using ML already to look at, you know, customer support chat requests and classify the kind of chat request it was. Oh, this person's asking for a product feature. This person's asking to churn. If this person's asking to churn, then therefore, you know, what is the rules-based system or decision tree type of system or whatever we're going to use to decide whether they're going to churn. And we might want to do some text extraction to learn why they want to churn and therefore whether we want to offer them a downgrade instead or whatever. That's all ML that already exists. But then on top of that, we're going to layer on new ML, which is we're actually going to talk back to them without a human in the loop because we can take the response that we've decided to to apply, whether it be offering a downgrade, granting the churn, whatever, and we're going to talk back to them and communicate that back to them using an LLM. So I think this is a classic example of it just being net new. And certainly it unlocks new things where companies who didn't have a use case before now have a use case for an LLM. But you also have companies that have use cases for other forms of ML also having a use case for an LLM. So I think it's net new. We haven't seen it replace other types of ML just because the other types of ML are so different. But, you know, it's still very young. We'll see where it goes. What makes the other types of ML so different? You mentioned, obviously, that's not a classifier, but I'm curious to like dig into that more. Well, I think there's just very, it's really more of a spectrum than than discrete buckets, but you can think of it as discrete buckets with spectrums in between, you know, okay, I want to predict the probability of a binary event, you know, like a regression. Okay. I want to classify things into different groups. I want to, I want to classify things into different groups without knowing ahead of time what the groups are, you know, I want to, and then we, we can move on from that to creating things. I want to create an image. I want to create a movie. I want to create a, a piece of a text, right? These are all different things that we might want to do. And what the LLMs have done is create a net new type of thing that was not previously possible, or at least not previously possible at this level of sophistication. Yeah, I think, I think that's spot on. I, I've kind of framed it as there's almost like four categories of models. There are types of models that have to be really, really cheap, fast, and explainable. We see this as like first pass like fraud detection, and those will almost always be traditional ML because LMs are way too slow. And way, like, could you imagine if every single credit transact? Uh, you know, we also have no literally as a text predictor. So, like, you know, that is an one way to predict fraud. It might be better than some other ways. It might be better than certain humans, but it's certainly not better to your point than a real classifier. Totally, and I think there's like this that category, which is most models in production. Like, we you mentioned fraud detection, and it's like such a the, one of the probably the most commonly deployed ML model is like some flavor of like fraud. Sure. And I think you'd have to, I think the the most profitable models in the world are probably still rankers, yeah. uh, which is another another form that we didn't talk about. So yeah. Yeah. And then there's kind of this like middle layer 
which I would call like recommender systems and, and other sure. things. Collaborative filters, these kinds of things. Yeah, where we're gonna we're seeing it happen already. Where like you're seeing embeddings, which aren't a new concept necessarily, but I think they're kind of getting supercharged with with all that LM stuff. And I think what will be interesting is like seeing, I guess this that's where we'll see LLMs kind of mix into traditional models. I think there'll be almost this gray area. Is is my sense of yeah. things where there's some models that might be better if you augment them with an LLM or vice versa. You have an LLM. And you augment the context of more traditional features. Like, hey, you want to give yeah. someone a recommendation on how to think about their finances. Well, you probably want to know some of how much money is in their bank account. How old are they? A mix of other yeah. things. And I think where we really see the new, the true net new things we were never able to do before are kind of these co-pilot-esque experiences, mm-hmm. which yeah. is more like augmenting humans, which is honestly one of the most profitable things you can like when I joke we spend like 30 bucks a month or something for everyone on our team for GPT-4 and then like I definitely <laughs> make way more like save way more. oh 100% I mean the, the models once once they're really cruising can really be a, a huge efficiency improvement and yeah the, you know the, the GitHub co-pilots I mean the first LLM I saw I think was the sentence long autocomplete in Gmail where I was like whoa what's this I think that was even before OpenAI started making a lot of noise so yeah, and then I think you know people talk about what happens when LLMs get hooked up to real sources of truth, and I think there's no difference between that and putting an LLM in a pipeline with a bunch of other stuff. What that's going to look like is first run your classifier or your regression or your ranker or whatever you're doing, then use that output in a constraint that's a prompt to an LLM, and then give the answer. And so now you're not asking the, the LLM to answer the question, you're asking the LLM to take this piece of information and frame it as an answer. And so that sort of constrains the outputs that you get in a really positive way. Yeah, exactly. And we've seen a lot of that. And I've also seen the opposite, where you use the LLM first, and then you constrain the LLM's possible outputs with a traditional model. Where it's like, hey, if the traditional yeah, model absolutely. feels like this is like, kind of like it would never guess something like this, safer to just not play with it. I think, I think a lot of it, to your point that you made earlier, a lot of it is efficiency improvements where it's like, okay, how many support tickets can a support person handle in parallel? Let's say five. I don't know. And then, well, what happens if an LLM is writing all the answers and all you're doing is glancing at each answer and making sure it's right because one in X will be wrong? Well, now it's 50 or 500. And so the efficiency improvement is massive. And because there's still a human in the loop, we're much less stressed about the accuracy or the hallucination or what have you. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's where we'll see, I think, the most interesting set of new use cases, which are net new, but in an interesting way, I think it also causes an explosion of traditional ML because it's just needed to make a lot of these applications even make sense. So we'll kind of see, in my opinion, kind of like a mix of everything, but we've been on this really long wave. You mentioned, I mean, since like even like the 80s, where there's been this push of like data is everything. We need to be focused on data. Data is unlocking new levels of productivity. Where I think there was first software, we kind of like every company is a software company now. That's like, duh. And then now I think where we see almost like, let's call it parabolic efficiency growth becomes with data. Like it's the only yeah. way to pull yeah. it off. Software is more like I can write one line of code and apply it to every single user of Google as if I worked at Google. Now it's like with one model, not only is that true, but also it continuously gets better. And as I create new models, it's just like the compounding effect is, is I guess. Yeah, and this lets you model the, the economic output of all these things, right? Where if you understand 
the lump of labor fallacy, then you're looking at a set of people who are in the workforce that are able to produce X dollars of economic output. Well, now we're going to give them this augmenter, this co-pilot, right? To be complete cliche for a moment, you borrow the Steve Jobs, you know, bicycle for your mind, right? We're just going to give them, this is more like a rocket ship for your mind now. And so your efficiency include, goes up by 10x or 100x. Well, now we can simply model the economic output of these things as taking the economic output that we had and multiplying it by that coefficient. And if that's true, then we can look at, okay, the biggest impact we can have is to apply these accelerators somehow to very large groups of people. Let's get out of the tech industry. How can we apply this to agriculture, right? How can we apply this to transit, right? Like, like where are the big areas, manufacturing, right? Where are the big areas where we could make a big impact here? Yeah, I think it will be really fascinating to watch. We're kind of at like the, this really perfect time and to be these early stage, an early stage company. It's like we know enough, we've done enough, or we have something ready to go. And at the same time, we're kind of at the start of a huge explosion. Absolutely. It's almost like being dot com. Well, as long as you don't get, you know, stomped out in the hype or you don't get too caught. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a cyclical industry. There will be a popping of a bubble. So, but it'll be less popping of a bubble and more a retrenchment, sort of like what we have seen in the last year in other areas of the tech industry. That's normal. This happens every 10 years or so. For those listening, we've talked a bit, obviously, a lot about the problem space of MLOps. I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of people listening are curious, like, what, what is Modelbit? <laughs> Modelbit is a really fast and easy way for data scientists to deploy ML models. So classically for us, a data scientist will be in some kind of notebook experience, a Jupyter notebook or a Hex or a DeepNote or a CoLab or something like that. And they'll have trained and built over many days, weeks, months, a model that they're ready to deploy and they're now encountering this friction with ML engineering. And from inside their notebook, they can run model bit.deploy. And we will capture the model itself, all the code that calls the model, the entire Python environment, which Python packages are required and what versions, which system packages that those Python packages depend on. All that gets put into a Docker container and delivered behind a REST API, backed by a Git repo with logging and load balancing and everything else that you might want. It takes about 10 seconds. So you get an automatically deployed ML model right out of your notebook that you can then hand to your engineering team. It's battle tested, it's bulletproof. And so we find that to be really popular with data scientists who are doing this work. And how do you think of it in comparison to like SageMaker or Vertex or some of the more the power? Yeah, I think SageMaker and Vertex tend to be a really good fit if you are, let's say a bank or a Fortune 500. And so you might have an army of IT people who can help you with the kinds of VPC configuration and IM roles and everything else that goes into deploying with AWS. And you maybe you have AWS services people who can also help you with that. But if you are a team of six data scientists just trying to rock and roll, you know, model bit is much faster and easier than those products. That's awesome. Is it, you can use it now? Is it, is it available? Oh yeah. I mean, I hope you'll talk to us. We would value everybody's feedback. But if you do not want to do that, you can simply go to modelbit.com and click the big button that says free trial and, uh, and try it out. A set of questions I wasn't even planning to ask, but you mentioned governance and some of the stuff around big banks. And I'm sure you dealt with this at scale with Periscope and SciSense. We mentioned the, the friction around data scientists and ML engineers. There's definitely a lot of friction when you start thinking about adding, if you're a bank, you've sprinkle on governance yeah. and regulation on top of that, and it becomes 10 times worse. And I'm sure BI was very similar. Yeah. How does that look? I mean, I think the problem is much harder in ML, right? I think 
at least, I mean, yes, to your point, governance is big business, basically making people feel better that they have some way to audit where all the data is coming from and where it's going and how it's being used. But at least in BI and data engineering, the data that we're talking about is like countable and quantifiable. You know, it's hard, but we can go through and identify every data source and every piece of data. With ML, especially with these LLMs now, you know, can we quantify every piece of data it was trained on? Can we find the lineage for all this stuff? Like, no, we can't. And so I think it's going to be a while, you know, as these, as these technologies sort of start to get figured out and we start to figure out what kind of governance we would even want for a system like that. I think it's super early. I think it's super unclear how that will shake out. That makes a ton of sense. I feel like I have so many more questions I want to ask you. I know we're coming up on time. I just want to thank you again for uh, taking the time to come on speaking to me.